Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Today's interview was made possible as part of the Theopsych Project, hosted by Fuller Seminary's Office of Science, Theology, and Religion. And you might hear Oliver and I reference this conference that we were both at last month at Fuller in Pasadena. After that main conversation, I'll be answering a patron-slash-listener question from Carrie Ann about language that the Apostle Paul sometimes uses, where he seems to say, that Jesus died for all people, not just some people. And the way that her reformed New Testament professor insisted on a particular reading. So that's later. But before I get to it here with Oliver, I'd like to explain my rationale for today's episode. A lot of listeners of this show have been burned, so to speak, in reformed churches, which, by the way, might be called Reformed or Presbyterian or Baptist or even Bible Church, anything in the Acts 29 church network, etc. There's a lot of churches that fall under this Reformed umbrella. And the term Calvinist is usually used interchangeably with the term Reformed. Uh, So that's what we're talking about. Some major players in American Christianity who are Reformed or Calvinist would be Tim Keller, John Piper, Francis Chan, D.A. Carson, Wayne Grudem, John MacArthur, R.C. Sproul, and many more. And certain kinds of Calvinism are really into what's called TULIP. This is five-point Calvinism. 
Uh, essentially, it boils down to double predestination. The idea that before we are born, God decides who will be saved and who will be damned. And Christ's death and resurrection are only for the elect, those predestined to be saved. Um, still, still kind of giving the lay of the land of Reformed Christianity closer to home. For me, the giant blow-up of Mars Hill Church with Mark Driscoll at its helm um, has had pretty devastating impacts on a number of my friends here in Seattle. And uh, just as a general rule of thumb, I've found, if you find yourself in, broadly speaking, progressive Christian circles, you are likely to find some antipathy or outright antagonism toward Calvinism and Reformed ways of understanding God. Um, and as I said earlier, a lot of people who listen to the show and a lot of my personal friends have, have really been burned uh, in these traditions. And yet there are these stubborn people in the world who just keep on existing, people like Oliver Crisp, um, who identify as Reformed and who make a pretty good case that a lot of these very popular Calvinists have actually set up something distinct from the Reformed tradition. So even if some of us have suffered wounds in Reformed settings, or maybe especially because we have, I thought it would be helpful to bring someone like Oliver on to give us an idea of what good there might be within the broader Reformed tradition. And I wanted to make sure to ask him about universalist Calvinism, which is a thing, and which solves most of my own problems with Reformed theology. So let's all be adults and give Reformed theology a fair hearing. Now, to introduce my guest, Oliver Crisp is a professor at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. He has doctoral degrees from King's College in London and the University of Aberdeen, and he's one of the leading analytic theologians working in the world today. Indeed, he and a couple other people more or less invented the field of analytic theology. And he has this book, which was the impetus for our conversation called Saving Calvinism. All right, let's get into it. So Oliver, yesterday, you know, we're at this seminar down in Pasadena at Fuller Seminary, hosted by Fuller, and we were at the Huntington Gardens, and we were in the cafeteria, and Trip Fuller... Mm. Our mutual friend <laughs> said something very nice about you in this little group conversation. He says, when I talk to my reformed friends, yeah. I tell them, look, if you're going to be reformed, at least be an Oliver Crisp reformed style guy. Wow. And I thought that was a nice thing for him to say. And yeah. also kind of explains why I wanted to interview you about this. I'm not going to interview a John Piperite to give a case for reformed Christianity. Right. Um, my understanding of your work is that you're actually arguing against quite a bit of what has become very popular in certain circles of American reformed thinking. Yeah. And, oh, I guess Western, British and American, but bigger in America, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. And so thank you for, for doing this. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I'd like to start with your own definition of reformed theology. What makes theology reformed? Yeah, that's a good question. I think there's a distinction maybe to be made between Calvinism and reformed, especially in terms of the way that those terms are used today in North American Christian culture. You get people who are kind of the new Calvinists. 
But the new Calvinists uh, tend to be focused on a much narrower sort of set of doctrines, the kind of five points of Calvinism. Tulip. Yeah. Tulip, exactly. And they don't really connect to the broader themes of the Reformed tradition. It's kind of narrowly focused. And then you can plug those doctrines into whatever your church context is. Usually for the new Calvinists, it's some kind of low church, free church type of thing. Often Baptist. Right. Yeah. Whereas I think that someone who's Reformed sees themselves as part of a, a kind of broader, deeper, richer theological tradition that goes back to the 16th century, to the Reformation, that has a number of different sort of luminaries, a number of different figures who are sort of important for Reformed theology. And I think Reformed theology is a way of thinking about the Christian faith that's confessional in nature, by which I mean it's focused on certain sort of written documents that are summaries of the Christian faith, like creeds, Reformed confessions, which are really fundamental for Reformed thought, and they're quite diverse in what they say about the Christian faith. So it's confessional. It's also uh, a way of thinking about the Christian faith that's, that's really importantly ecclesial. In other words, it understands itself in terms of a particular way of thinking about the shape and the nature of the church. Usually that's in one of two forms, it seems to me, either a way of thinking about the church that's episcopal, you know, in other words, ruled by bishops, or Presbyterian. And then the other thing I'd say is that Reformed theology and the Reformed tradition is also a sacramental tradition. So Reformed people tend to think of the way the church should act in the world as expressed in certain sorts of liturgies or ways of worshipping and understood in terms of particular ways of understanding the sacraments, in particular the sacrament of baptism and Eucharist. And those things make for a much broader and richer and deeper account of the Christian faith. And I think the word Calvinism or Calvinist has in American culture. And I think from my point of view, importantly, it provides for a certain kind of breadth and diversity that is often absent from some of the new Calvinist discussions. Yeah, that's good. I, I should have said this at the very beginning. Most of these questions, I think more than half of them were written by patrons, listeners of the show, via the Facebook group, and I'm really glad for that. I think people have asked, and you've seen the questions, there's some yeah. stuff coming from people's stories, for sure, right. and I wouldn't have been able to think of that myself, because I don't, I don't have any particular autobiographical baggage with the Reformed tradition. I've tried to organize them so that they flow, but it might get a little bit jagged at sure. times, and, and that's probably why. So can you talk a little bit more about these very public, very successful, in Christian terms, kind of maybe overly zealous proponents of Calvinism. Yeah. And, and maybe that's a good way of saying it. They're not necessarily proponents of the Reformed tradition. They are proponents of Calvinism specifically, and they have their own kind of take. So what's going on there, and who are some of those people? Yeah, I think this goes back to the distinction I was making between Calvinism and the Reformed tradition. It's a distinction I've tried to press in my own work on this. I think a lot of the so-called new Calvinists, these people who take the five points as sort of their kind of center of what they think Calvinism is. We should say before we go further, there is an episode from the very beginning about Tulip and Acura. So Good. total depravity, unconditional election, unconditional election, election, limited atonement, irresistible, irresistible grace. grace and perseverance of the saints. So basically you Nailed combine it. these things, you get the classic doctrine of double predestination that yeah. God chooses who will be saved before time or before they are born in some right, way, right. and that Christ's death and resurrection is only for the elect, right. is not for the reprobate, the right. damned. Yeah. And that's not the only thing that Calvin believed, but it is a, a, a particular aspect of his thought that 
some future generations have really latched on to. And you're saying this group of sort of neo-Calvinists or neo-reformed, I've heard it both ways, are really focused on that. And then they're just kind of plugging that in mm. to whatever else they're doing. And they're maybe not looking at the whole thing. Right. Exactly. That's exactly what I would say. And whereas I think that the Reformed tradition is much broader, as I've already indicated. I mean, so from my point of view, you'd want to include within the Reformed tradition people like Karl Barth, Friedrich Schleiermacher, as well as people like William Shedd, who's a 19th century conservative Presbyterian, or the Princeton theologians, or John Williamson Nevin, who's a very liturgical, sacramental German Reformed theologian, as well as people like uh, Vermeili or uh, Zanke or um, Tarotin, and then before them, people like Zwingli and Calvin. So there's a whole there's a whole constellation of people. I think one of the problems I have okay, with instead of just naming those names, since most of our listeners did not go to seminary, okay, sure, not, sure. neither did I. <laughs> Sorry, okay, just maybe just throw out a couple important ideas in that are within that list that are yeah. different than the election stuff. Yeah, good. So for example, let me just take one really important difference between say the view that's often associated with Calvin on election and the view that's often associated with, say, someone like Bart, right? We might describe Calvin's view of these things uh, in terms of a fork. That's the way I often talk about Calvin's fork. Because what Calvin thinks is that human... Fork. Fork, yeah, exactly, as opposed to <laughs> spoon or knife. Yes, got it, okay. Uh, Calvin thinks that human beings are divided into two groups, hence the two a kind of two-pronged fork. There are those that are elect and those that are reprobate. And these uh, two groups of people are set forth in the eternal counsels of God. And so you just fall into one of those two groups and those who are elect will come to salvation. Those who are reprobate won't. And, uh, you, you know, there, there are eternal destinies associated with each group. Here's an interesting way of comparing Calvin to, say, Bart. You might think of Bart's way of thinking as an inversion of the fork rather than thinking of human beings being divided into these two groups. He thinks that these two aspects, if you like, of human beings meet together, converge, so it's like an inverted fork, in one person, namely Jesus Christ. So on Bart's way of thinking, it's elections about the election of one person, Christ, not the election of certain numbers of human beings, not others. And in virtue of God electing this one person, you have in that one person both God's delight in choosing through him, the whole of humanity, and God's reprobation, so that in Christ, his suffering on the cross preeminently, I suppose, in Christ you find both election and reprobation meeting in one person, as a consequence of which, on Bart's way of thinking, the whole picture that you find in much historic Calvinism is kind of turned on its head. Now, of course, many people who are new Calvinists will be very unsympathetic to Bart and will say, this is completely wrong, it's a complete misunderstanding of the gospel, and so on and so forth. Nevertheless, I mean, Bart stands in the Reformed tradition. So it seems to me that... And also a lot of them, <clears throat> if, if I'm not mistaken, will want to claim Bart when they're talking about their high view of Scripture. They, right. they like what Bart says about, no, the Bible is something wholly other. It's yeah. super important. It's coming from God in a way that all other forms of communication and revelation are not. Bart has this really high view of Scripture. They want that. But yes. they don't want this other bit. Yeah, I think it's true that people will appeal to Bart for certain sorts of things because they see his importance. And so there is sometimes a worry that, you know, you end up cherry picking Bart when it suits yeah. your purposes. And maybe we're all doing that to some extent. But I think what's interesting about Bart is that he is a really good example of how something that's usually associated as something that's right at the heart of Calvinism is, when you look at this broader picture of the Reformed tradition, something that's contested. And two great 
figures in the tradition, Calvin right at the beginning, Bart in the 20th century, end up with very different views of this fundamental doctrine. It shapes their way of thinking about theology in very different ways. Nevertheless, they have sufficient family resemblance, so to speak, that they both belong to the same theological tradition. And I think that's really important. So this uh, <clears throat> inverted fork idea of Bart's, yeah. this is why, if I'm not mistaken, Bart never claimed himself to be a universalist to say that he believed that God actually saves through the election of Christ all people. But a lot of people want to say he either was and didn't admit it or his thought lends itself very readily. It's just a tiny little step to go, well, if the fork is inverted yep. and if Christ takes all the reprobation, mm -hmm. if Christ takes all of that on the cross and you know, elsewhere in Paul you have so that all things will be brought into Christ that, you know, whatever I'm butchering the, there's a, few, a bunch of those phrases, right? Yeah, right, right. Um, you just combine those ideas and you say, yeah, God can make vessels for wrath or glory. Mm -hmm. He can do that. Mm -hmm. And he sort of did, but he put all the wrath in Christ and took it all. And then you end up with logically this sort of universal salvation. Am I getting that right? Yeah, there is. You're, you're, you are getting it right. There, there is a big debate about how to understand Bart on all sorts of topics, and this is one of the fundamental ones. I had previously thought that Bart was a universalist and argued for that. I've been corrected by some real Bart scholars along the way, people like David Congdon. And I think my view now is that Bart's something like a hopeful universalist. In other sure. words, he hopes that all people will be saved, but he can't say categorically. So he does say about universalism, I don't teach it, but I also don't not teach it. Right? Yeah. I think what's important in my mind, though, is just for me, this is the way to appreciate the Reformed tradition. This is kind of my end around, is that if you tell me before the conversation begins that I'm going to have to believe that God predestines people's eternal destiny before they have any say in the matter, and then that's just it. And then yeah. even if hell, it's much worse with eternal conscious torment. It's not as bad on annihilationism, but even then it seems unjust. It seems like to not line up with sort of basic understandings of justice. Right then I, it's kind of a non-starter. If I understand that one way of going through this is, is Bart plus one jump, yeah. and I can keep 98% of what Bart thought about this, then I'm like, okay, now I'm interested. And now we can, and I understand the desire to take all of those passages very seriously mm -hmm. and to not just toss them out because they are against our intuitions, something like that. And I think to be fair to Bart, I think that's what he's trying to do. I think he's, he sees that there's a tension in the biblical tradition between passages that seem to be all-inclusive in, with respect to salvation, right. like in Colossians 1. All things are reconciled through Christ. That's what it says there. Yeah. And those passages which seem to be much more particular, you know, things like Romans 9, for example, where it seems like a particular number is saved. So you, you are let, there's a tension in Scripture. It much depends on what you do with that tension, which of those passages you privilege over the others, which you use to interpret the others. And to some extent, you might understand Bart's thinking, I suppose, as an, an attempt to hold those things in tension. And I very much appreciate that. I struggle, like so many people, with these passages and trying to figure out how to reconcile the two things when they seem to be pushing in different directions. And I suppose I have come over the years to think that Bart's attempt to hold these things in tension is a creative way within the Reformed tradition of holding on to a very sort of optimistic account of the scope of salvation. Yeah, I guess just for me, it, it is an available tack. It's an available right. direction right. to go 
within this tradition. Absolutely. It is, definitely. Why do you think that these neo-Calvinists who just extract TULIP, the double predestination, and maybe a couple other things, really high view of God's sovereignty, and then sort of plug and play that into whatever yeah. else they're doing? Why is that so popular? Because on the one hand, it, it seems disgusting. To me, it seems morally disgusting. Yeah. I mean, we're at this theology-psychology seminar. I mean, do you think it's a psychological explanation? Do you think it's a theological explanation for the popularity of that movement? I think maybe it's a bit of both. I, I mean, my sense is that one reason for the popularity of that sort of way of approaching things is just that often religious people, and I include myself in that group, want certainty. We want definite answers to the very difficult existential questions yeah. we have. And one of the things that I think people find attractive about a kind of five-point Calvinism is that there's this kind of clear, consistent framework, which if you apply universally to your theology, will give you answers to all these difficult questions that are sure and clear and certain. And so if that's what you need, that kind of religious reassurance, and again, I'm not being disparaging here, because I think to, to some extent, we all want that. Oh, I see it in myself, yeah. Here's a prefabricated answer to that set of problems. And so that's very appealing, I think, to a lot of people that that, you know, you plug, as you say, you plug and play that. And when you come across difficulties, you've got a ready answer to those difficulties. And it strikes me that it appeals to a certain kind of person and not another kind of person. So right. a non-religious person looking in would say might be able to understand the certainty bit, but they don't understand why these are the questions that matter. Right. But someone raised in the church who is more likely to believe that eternal destiny is the most important thing for obvious reasons. If you believe that that's plausible, then where you go when you die for eternity, especially if you think of that in terms of like eternally consecutive moments that you will consciously experience, that is of course more important than anything else. Yeah. You know, you often hear, well, this life is a blip and the real drama takes place in the next life. And if you think that, and if you want certainty, well then, Anything else in your life, here's the thing you can know for sure about the most important thing. Yeah. And then we'll go from there for the less important things. That's, yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I remember some years ago reading um, George Marsden's big biography of the New England uh, theologian and pastor Jonathan Edwards, who, who I've got an interest in. And one of the things he said at the beginning of that big biography, as a historian, he's a kind of like, you know, a guild historian, so writing for a much broader crowd than just evangelicals. Yeah. He said, you know, if you're not amongst the evangelical crowd, just read this as if you thought that the world involved these eternal decisions. I thought that was a really good way of framing it so that people who are, as you put it, from the outside looking in and think, what is this about? can get a kind of conceptual grip on why it is that many people of faith in the Christian tradition find these so compe such compelling sorts of problems. So I have a couple questions here about things that are strongly associated with Reformed churches in the States. And the first one is penal substitutionary atonement. Yep. I did an episode on this with Bonnie Christian from her Flexible Faith book. We went mm -hmm. through all the atonement theories, and I'm kind of, I lean toward an orthodox understanding that like all of them, they're all basically metaphors. I have some questions about certain metaphors, if they can coexist with others, especially the Anselmian satisfaction model of mm. that seems to be based on medieval justice of God is like a Lord and I'm like a peasant. Other than basically that, I think you can mostly find ways, depending on how strongly you take the theories, yeah. to work metaphorically. But something you tend to find in reform circles is 
penal substitution, mm-hmm. the idea Christ took the punishment. I mean, we're hearing that in Bart, mm-hmm. in, in your description of Bart, um, really seems to come to the forefront. Is that something that you think is necessary? Is that something that has been accidental just in the course of things? Is that really central to your understanding of the atonement? Is it the primary theory? Yeah, that's a really good question. I do think a lot of Reformed people historically have thought some doctrine of satisfaction or penal substitution really is the the kind of one motif to rule them all, as it were. And I've certainly come out of that background myself. I mean, I've been working on the atonement for a few years now, and I've been trying to think through these things. But along the way, what's happened as a little bit of biography is that I've encountered more of the ancient church's views, particularly the views of people like Athanasius and Irenaeus and and others who've impressed upon me the importance of theosis, this idea that somehow we're on this journey into God, becoming more godlike, becoming partakers of the divine nature over the course of time, and that whatever we make of the incarnation and atonement of Christ, it has to be about us being united to God and being able to participate in the divine life. As opposed to being a sort of a binary switch, you go from not saved to saved, and that being pretty much the story. Right. Theosis uh, really brings a ramp into it. It says, look, saved or not saved, wherever you are right now, like you could be quite a bit more like Christ. And yeah. as you theoretically mature in the Christian life and on some views after you die as you know whatever like the goal is to is real like united with Christ doesn't only mean on the theosis when you think in theosis doesn't only mean my sins are covered right united with Christ is much is a much thicker notion of like my nature is more like Christ's nature increasingly over time it's something that you see in the Eastern Orthodox tradition very strongly. Absolutely. But what's been interesting to me at the same time as coming to see this early tradition and seeing the importance of it is how in recent times a number of theologians and historians have begun to recover an account of theosis in Western Christianity. Okay. So now people talk about a doctrine of theosis in Aquinas, a doctrine of theosis in Calvin, Hmm. a doctrine of theosis in Jonathan Edwards, I mean, I've uh, of that and and many others, Wesleyan and others. Uh, For my own part, the the one, the two that I know most intimately in in that group are Calvin and and Edwards, and it's Edwards' work that I've spent most of my time considering. And there's no doubt that Edwards had a doctrine of theosis, which is a kind of mind blowing conclusion because the last thing you'd expect for someone who who is the kind of poster boy of the new Calvinists is that it turns out. He thinks theosis is fundamental to the Christian faith, but it's really inescapable if you read his work, God's End in Creation, that he thinks that we're on this journey into God and it goes on forever and ever. And Jonathan Edwards is, of course, known for his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Right. Just the <laughs> that phrase alone will put the hackles up on some right. of my listeners, I'm sure, and it, it puts me in mind of that famous moment that was recorded in a Mark Driscoll sermon at Mars Hill Church in Seattle before it exploded, pointing around the room, God hates some of you. Right. I mean, that's the angry God of the new Calvinism of like, yep. no, it's really binary and you don't know. And this somehow brings God glory, which I never, I've not been able to understand at an intuitive level. I see how it brings him power or it shines a light on his power. Yeah. Actually, can we talk about that a little bit? This sure. has been maybe one of my biggest hangups with the Reformed <clears throat> tradition. And I, I will admit, I've probably been more in contact with brushing up against the neo-Reformed than yeah. what you're representing. But I don't understand how they think about God's glory. Like, glory is 
as far as I can tell on the on the really high sovereignty views, simply power. It's might. Because on theosis or or rehabilitative justice or these kind of things, oh, I can see glory in that. Mm. You imagine the prisoner coming out and reentering life and becoming a new person. Well, that mm. sounds like, whoa, I'm going to give credit to whomever sort of brought that about. But like simply going, look how many souls I can damn. And by definition, because of the distance between us, you can't say anything. I'm like, that's not glory. Mm-hmm. That's a different word. Yeah. What do you uh, What do you have to say about that? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think you're right that glory is sometimes brought into disrepute, as it were. But maybe that's partly because we have the wrong associations for glory. Maybe we should think about glory alongside beauty, for example. That sounds good to me. <laughs> um, so that God's glorious in as much as he's the most beautiful and the most wonderful entity. And so if you're if you are the most beautiful and wonderful entity then then that I think puts this whole register of what we do with this notion of glory in, in a rather different light that God if he acts for his glory he acts in order to do that which is most beautiful which is most fitting in order that things conform to that. I think that's 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 an idea that you find in in Edwards for example but I do agree with you that um, some language about glory seems to be at the expense of other aspects of the divine character, as if that's the only thing that matters. Yeah. And for my own part, these days, I've been convinced through, or persuaded, I should say, by reading people like Thomas Aquinas and also some of my own uh, doctoral students, Jordan Wesling, for example, who's written on divine love, that we need to, in some respects, sort of condition our notions of glory in terms of these some of these other divine attributes. His, his Jordan's stuff is on divine love. Uh, so that when we think about why does God create the world, I mean, the, the classic sort of Edwardsian and neo-Calvinist uh, way of thinking about this is God does everything for his own glory. Yes, right. But maybe instead of thinking of it purely in those sorts of terms, and the worry with that, of course, is that it instrumentalizes human beings. It me- makes us a means to an end rather than an end in ourselves. Which- intuitively seems like the opposite of God created people for loving relationship. Exactly. Which seems to be the general counsel of the Bible and the Christian tradition. Right. So that does seem to be a problem when I'm just merely the the instrument or the means to some further end. We wouldn't tend to think that's a good thing in human relationships. So it's weird if we think that's a good thing in, in divine human relationships. So I do think there may be some room for a corrective there from a more Thomistic perspective where we think of God's end in creation as including this aspect of glory, but also and fundamentally about a kind of unitive or participatory dimension. In other words, God brings about this world with creatures like you and I in order that ultimately we may be able to participate in the divine life and enjoy the presence of God. That is a much more compelling vision of what divine glory is about, it seems to me. It seems that it also accords with the evolutionary record of sort of Starting with no life to life to increased yeah. forms of complexity yeah. leading to consciousness of self and basically the universe becoming conscious of itself through humans and possibly some other species elsewhere or to lesser degrees, other animals. Right. And that, you know, if you want to plot that on a story graph, it sure looks like the point of that story thus far anyway, mm-hmm. is to be able to commune with God's creatures. Right. And that's... And so if you want to say, well, all of that is glory, I mean, I guess it's power. It's like, look what I can make. But it it does seem to be like, well, if it's just about power, also like, why make sentient beings? Yeah. 
unless it's just so that we this is where it gets slippery for me mm. or where I've heard it said and I, it sounds disgusting is like well it's so that we could ascribe that glory back to God yeah. so it's like it's not enough for God to create a universe God also in his ego or something if we would anthropomorphize a bit needs us to tell God how cool God is right. it just like then how does that square with Jesus and you know it's just it's a weird it's a weird overall way of thinking about the loving God of Christianity. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. That is a concern. And those strands of, Christian, of Christianity, and particularly reformed Christianity, where that sort of uh, way of thinking predominates, it seems to me deeply problematic and lopsided. They're giving only part of the picture. And if that's all you come away with, then you, you are coming away with a fundamentally skewed and caricatured account of God's purposes in creation and the divine nature, it seems to me. I mean, God is love, we're told by the Apostle John. God's desires in creation, it seems to me, are about bringing about creatures that can participate in his life and can be united with him through Christ and can enjoy the presence of God forevermore. And that's definitely also a theme that you find in the Reformed tradition. But sometimes in contemporary popular Christian culture, that's obscured or occluded by this rather angry God. The other issue that gets linked a lot in practice is a complementarian view of gender. Yep. Um, and I, this was definitely one of the patron questions, and I'm grateful for it. Is that an accident? Is that, first of all, in, in your, is that right? And then is that an accident? Or is that, would that, is that a consequence of, of your kind of reform view? Is that a consequence of, as you said, kind of taking out Tulip and plugging it in to whatever else is going on? I mean, that would seem to be my default yeah. My default answer is like, well, these are Southern Baptists. They're going to be complementarian anyway. Yeah. It's not, it doesn't really matter, but that might be a unfair treatment. Yeah. First of all, I'm not a complementarian. I mean, I teach at Fuller Seminary where we think yeah. that the ordination of women is an, is an important thing to be celebrated and where the gifts of men and women together in the, in the life of the church in leading the church are things to be pursued. So uh, let me make that very clear. And I'm very committed to that. And that's one of, the, yeah. one of the things that attracted me to come here in the first place. Some background. I mean, I think if you look back into the history of the church, I mean, all of the historic f expressions of Christianity have been to some extent complementarian. And it's only in relatively recent times that we've come to a better or fuller awareness of the problems of that, I think, a bit like the problems with patriarchy. You can certainly find moments in the history of the church where that's been sort of, that trend has been bucked by various people in the life of the church, which is something that we should celebrate, I think. And there is some reason to think that perhaps it wasn't, wasn't always the case, and maybe in the early church that it wasn't necessarily the case, that's the kind of complementarian view was de facto, but I think it has been for the vast majority of the life of the church. But my own view is that that's a problem and that's something that we need to address, the church needs to address and needs to rethink. So I, I think you're right that in much historic reform theology, a kind of complementarianism is thought to be a natural correlate to other sorts of theological claims in the reform tradition. What I'm trying to say is that's probably true at the vast majority of uh, okay. Christianity. That's not to exculpate anyone. That's still a problem, but it's just yeah. a broader problem than just simply the reformed. 
Well, one move you might imagine be making, well, if God can make vessels for wrath or glory, then God can also make vessels for leadership and submission. Right. Do you find evidence of people actually making that connection? Oh, yeah, of course, of course. And you can find evidence of that in the Reformed tradition. I think you can find that in other traditions as well. I mean, just sure. look at Roman Catholicism. There are no female priests right. or bishops, right? Look at orthodoxy, same thing. Yeah. The two most populous expressions of Christianity on the planet are effectively complementary in that respect. So that's not something that's peculiar to Reformed Christianity, but it is a problem that you find expressed in the way that you just said in, in some Reformed circles. And I say it is a problem. Yeah. Back to that idea of God hates some of you, the Driscoll line. And, you know, I, not everybody in that camp would certainly feel comfortable saying that from the pulpit, although it, it does seem to be a, a consequence of that particular kind of thinking. Yeah. On your view... Who does God love? Does God hate anybody? Does God love everybody? I mean, how do you think about that? Yeah, that's an important question. It's a difficult question. And I suppose it circles back to some of the things you were saying earlier about election. My own view is that God's love is for all of his creation. In that respect, his love is not partial. I think there's an important question about whether or not the whole of creation is ultimately reconciled to God's self. So whether that love finds a, a kind of ultimate goal in um, the reconciliation of all things or whether some things ultimately are that remain alienated from God's self at the kind of fullness of all time, so to speak, in the eschaton, in the world to come. And that is, again, that's a difficult question for, for all Christians, I think, given that we have these tensions in the biblical tradition and tensions in the post-biblical tradition trying to, trying to make sense of how God's eternal purposes in, in the created order may result in the salvation of some and not others, perhaps. But I certainly wouldn't want to celebrate some kind of notion that some people ultimately may not be reconciled to God's self if that's what does happen. That's something which I think all Christians should mourn over, uh, not something that we should be um, sort of jumping up and down in fits of delight about. It's something which, if that's if that does happen, if it is the case that at the end of all things, some people are ultimately not reconciled to God's self and choose to remain in a, in a state of sin, that's something that we should all be sad about. I think that's a great tragedy. If that if that is what happens, I mean, I'm not saying that is what happens, but if that is what happens, then that would be something that would be tragic, not wonderful. But isn't there a problem if you're going to be in the reform tradition, as I understand it, with with answering the way that you did? You say it might be the case that some people choose not choose don't choose God. They continue yeah. not choosing God. Yeah. Maybe you think of the C.S. Lewis, yeah, great divorce right. thing. You know, right. They, they have a chance, but they just they can't bring themselves to it because yeah. actually God would be painful to them. Yeah. But there's choice because they've chose all their lives and whatever. Sure. It seems like on a non-reformed view, that makes more sense. If yeah. you have a higher view of human capacity to accept or reject God, yeah. or even if you just say the consequences of our will are greater for our eternal destiny. But it seems to me that the whole kind of thrust of the reformed view is to emphasize God's sovereignty over most or all things, which yeah. depending on who you ask, including humans' choice to accept or reject God. And so, I mean, that's why that's why I wanted to talk about universalism first, because it's kind of the only way that I can think clearly about the reform view, because yeah. I get to this problem and I go, well, if it's not universalist reformed, then I got to go some other way so that I can account for yeah. people freely not choosing God. So right. how do you respond to that? 
I think that's one of the nodal issues for Reformed Christians and for any Reformed Christian who has a kind of theologically determinist account of things. In other words, who thinks that God's ordination of what happens in the world is effectual. It's going to bring certain things about and nothing can frustrate the will of God in that respect. And that's certainly an important distinctive of the vast majority of Reformed thought, I would say. Nevertheless, there are different ways in which that can be parsed, if you like, or different ways in which that can be cashed out. So even someone like B.B. Warfield, who's not a flaky Calvinist, in the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, points out in a short little book of his on the scope of salvation that really, if you're going to be a universalist, the best way to be a universalist is to be a Calvinist. In as much as if you're someone who's reformed and you think that God's purposes, God's eternal purposes can't be frustrated, then whatever it is that God ordains with respect to salvation is inevitably going to come about, right? So that if you think that it transpires that God's purposes in salvation includes all of humanity and none ultimately are abandoned or passed over or left to their own sin, then universalism is a natural a kind of consequence of certain reformed commitments. So even someone like Warfield sees that that's the case. If you if you set things up in a certain sort of way, for someone who's reformed, universalism isn't an inevitable outcome. And there are certain people in the reformed tradition who've embraced that, someone like Friedrich Schleimacher, for example. And as you pointed out earlier, often Bart is thought to be a universalist for similar sorts of reasons. So universalism is, in my view, if you just look at the kind of internal logic of, right. of the Reformed approach, independent of Scripture, right? If we were allowed to do that, if that's not inappropriate. If we were just to look at the internal logic... You have permission uh, thank for, the, you. for the moment. Thank yeah. you, you're too kind. If you look at the internal logic of it, then universalism is an obvious way to go, right? If you set it up in a certain way. But it's not the only way to go. I mean, uh, But whatever way you go, it'd have to have certain outcomes, right? Mm -hmm. As in certain insure outcomes. So another option would be to go the kind of Warfield route, the, the, the way that Warfield ultimately goes, and he's not alone in this, and saying the vast majority of the human race will be saved. And there's going to be some small remnant that isn't saved, probably, that will ultimately be cast away from the presence of God. But that the vast majority of the human race will be amongst the elect. Again, that's for some people, that's news, right? Some people think, oh, the reform just think there's this tiny, yeah, right. tiny rump of human beings that get saved and everyone else gets down. Well, someone like Warfield, who's very much front and center in, in the later reform tradition, thinks that's not the case. Other people like William G. She Shedd, who I've mentioned earlier, who's another well-known 19th century Calvinist, thinks something very similar. So there's certainly scope within the reform tradition to have a much more optimistic account of how many people get saved. And of course, then there are those people who think, no, the number of those who get saved is much smaller than the total number. So there are options depending on how you construe the kind of shape of what reform people are committed to in terms of God's purposes in the created order. Of course, things get complicated because we don't simply have to deal with the internal logic, so to speak, of Calvinism. We have to deal with the text. We have to deal with the text, and the text is messier. And I think that's precisely where to return to Bart once more, where someone like Bart is trying to take seriously the complexity of the text that we're left with. And I think one temptation here is to simply iron out that complexity and try and cut away any frayed edges to make something fit into a nice neat box. That's a difficult thing to do, it seems to me. It seems like a reform view always includes a really high view of scripture. Yeah. 
in America, a high view of scripture almost always means a univocal view of scripture that if properly understood, the Bible speaks with one voice on any important issue. Salvation is certainly one such important issue. So the text should speak in one voice. My solution to that in my own theology has been to accept multivocality, which once I tried that on, now I can't go back. It's it seems abundantly clear to me that it's multivocal. Yeah. So let's say that I was, if I'm a committed to multivocality, am I committed to a lower view of Scripture in that sense? And then would I just not take the Reformed move? Or is there a sense in which someone could go, hey, I see multiple strains here. I think the internal logic of the universal ending is stronger. I'm just going to lean on the multivocality part and say, maybe some days Paul felt like it wasn't going to be the case. Or maybe... When Jesus talks about the sheep and the goats, which is the harder one for me, you know, the words of Christ are harder than the words of Paul in this respect. Yeah. Maybe Jesus means this shit is serious. Like, yeah, yeah. This is this is as important as it gets. The stuff I'm talking about to you is of utmost importance, ultimate concern. Yeah. Is that an available route for people who would take this stuff seriously? Um, well, I certainly think we have to treat seriously the humanity of Scripture and the fact that there are different voices in Scripture. I mean, one can push that to a point where you just have different and incompatible theologies in Scripture. That might be a problem for someone who's Reformed. I mean, at least one, one would have to give some tell some story about how that would be consistent with other Reformed commitments. But yeah. someone who's Reformed might say something like this. There are various different texts in Scripture that seem to be pushing in different directions. There's certainly tensions in the biblical texts with respect to these issues about fundamental issues about salvation and other issues as well. Maybe often the problem is that we expect too much of the text. Maybe the texts are metaphysically underdetermined. In other words, the texts themselves are consistent with more than one kind of bigger metaphysical picture of the way things are. And then you have to make a decision about which metaphysical view, worldview, as it were, you think best comports with the different texts that we have. Now, if you take that sort of view, it seems to me often, not always, but often, that helps when helps alleviate some of the pressure when we're dealing with some of these difficult issues, right? I mean, with the, with the texts with respect to salvation, you might say, well, look, it's, it's not clear to me that the texts say ultimately all people will be saved. It's not clear to me the texts say ultimately all people won't be saved. There seems to be tension here, and maybe the right thing to do is go for something like a hopeful universalism like Bart and say, we're kind of agnostic. We don't exactly know. We hope for the best in the purposes of God, but the texts themselves don't are kind of underdetermined in this respect. And so there's there's room for us to take the text very seriously, have a high view of the text, but nevertheless have a kind of agnosticism with respect to what it is that they deliver for us theologically. Yeah, I just say I'm a universalist, but I can't prove it. Yeah, well, so that's go, another way to go. I mean, that's yeah. also a way that, you've, that you find in, in uh, you, at least you find the universalists in the Reformed tradition. There aren't very many of them, but they're, they're there. Yeah, and I, I just, that's like one click beyond um, hopeful. It's like, I think that's what happens. Yeah, that right, right. All things equal, but sure. you can't prove it. And those passages of, of Jesus are the biggest sticking points. That right. I just can't really be confident that I've got that right. right. It's it's plausible yep. um, the way I read them. So there are a lot of cool things about being a patron of this show. One of them, as you've been hearing throughout this conversation, is the vast amount of help I got with questions for Oliver. 
many of which were written by patrons via the Facebook group, which is for patrons only. That group itself is another cool thing. And another cool thing you get as a patron is two extra patron-only exclusive episodes per month. And the most recent one is with my buddy Jed Payne. He is the host of the Church and Other Drugs podcast, and he has a crazy story. Uh, Multiple comas, overdosing, guns, dealing, prison, answered prayers. Um, And I just, after being interviewed by him a couple times, I was like, dude, I got to interview you. This story is great. And so we sat down for like an hour, and I just heard his story, which was fantastic. And here are... A couple clips from that conversation. It was like kindergarten or pre-K, but, you know, I remember I had like a little kindergarten girlfriend. And I remember one day we were playing like Batman and she was Catwoman. And like at one point we like kissed on the lips and it was cool, you know, and I came home and I told my mom about it. And she like sat me down and she was like, now, you know, that's not good. Da, 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 da. So what I remember from then on is that like, (sighs) okay. I have these urges. They are bad. Therefore, I am bad. Hmm. And that's when I started the, you know, I've, I've, I repeatedly asked my mom, how do I know I'm saved? Um, you know, I, so I've been baptized publicly like four or five times. Oh my gosh. Saying the, the sinner's prayer, like nightly, just real afraid, you know? Yeah. Lord comes soon think I just never got that. And I was always like, what? You mean you want to die? Like I, that to me sounded like suicide. Like why would you want to die sooner? Don't you want to see your kids grow up? Don't you want to like know what it's like to be older? Don't you want to try more foods? You know, whatever. Uh, and so I, that's that's interesting. So you – Yeah, the, the answer to me was no. It yeah. was like any, any, any pleasure I'm going to get here is going to be – nothing compared yeah. to what's what's about to come so you you really believed and internalized and like you it really sunk in for you that this is but a vapor here and there is something else that will totally dwarf it yes absolutely and their apartment was trashed there was blood everywhere because i had gone into a seizure and i hit my head on their table and then started just seizuring blood everywhere And plus, I really it wasn't until recently that like my friends have overdosed and I went to the hospital and I'm like, oh, this sucks. Watching your friend die is awful. Being in the hospital bed, I don't really remember it. Hmm. You know what I'm saying? You know, so you don't Um, actually have that. You're sort of saved from the traumatic experience by being unconscious. 100, 100 percent. Interesting. 100 percent. That's really interesting. I've never thought about it that way before, but that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Um, I had a bunch of guns. This is like the darkest point in my life where I was just very, very possessed for lack of a better term. I was, yeah. you know, con- like putting guns in my mouth on a regular basis, Jeez. like very, very dark, dark, dark place. And there was just a knock on the door. I thought it was one of my customers. I opened the door and it was a police officer and he reached in and handcuffed me and said, do you remember stealing a car? And I was like, what? No. And he's like, well, we do. You know, here you go goosebumps I had to run to the bathroom and I just broke down in tears because it was it was just that's never happened to me where it was like a direct answer to prayer I took it as like God was like I'm real I'm here this is all supposed to be like I got you and it was like 
crazy, crazy, crazy. So if that sounds interesting to you or if you want to be a patron because you want to support the show or you want to be a part of the Facebook group uh, or all of the above, head to patreon.com slash Dan Koch, K-O-C-H, or youhavepermissionpod.com and click become a patron. Starts at five bucks. You can give more if you'd like. And if you don't have five bucks a month because it's really a rough season financially, there are scholarships. So shoot me an email. You have permission podcast at gmail.com. Back to our conversation with Oliver. Does reformed theology require any particular view of hell or of eternal judgment or annihilation or how open is that in the tradition? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it depends how committed you are to a certain way of thinking about Reformed theology is confessional, I suppose. I mean, it seems to me that some of that language is enshrined in the confessions and it's difficult to get rid of it. Do confessions rise to the level of Scripture? I no, mean that, no, they you know don't. I mean? No, but they don't rise to the level of Scripture for people who are Reformed. They're what's sometimes called subordinate norms, but they are norms. In other words, they do have prescriptions that we need to take seriously. They set seriously. some boundaries yeah, they for set the some group. Boundaries, yeah. right. So, you, I mean, again, I think like a lot of the things we're talking about here and maybe this is this is a broader point that I'm trying to make is that there's breadth to the reformed tradition there is more than one answer that you find amongst reformed theologians that in itself is a not uncontested conclusion but it seems to me indisputable and so to some extent it, you've got to pay money and take your choice i mean it looks to me like the mainstay view in in the reformed tradition is yes there is a heaven and hell and it looks like both of those places are probably populated. But, you know, there are others who tend to more optimistic view who might think, well, maybe hell's populated. We don't know exactly, even if it is populated, not with very many people. And there are other issues besides that one, issues to do with what we think the ultimate destination of human beings. I mean, sometimes in popular American religion, it's almost as if this material universe is simply a kind of preliminary run for this wonderful immaterial life that we will live thereafter. But that's not what we find in Scripture or much of the Christian tradition. We're not bound for some immaterial existence forevermore. We're bound for some kind of new heavens and new earth and new material existence. So I think one wants to take that seriously as well. And many Reformed theologians are sensitive to that, that the uh, ultimate end of human beings isn't to leave this world for some ethereal realm, whatever that's like, good or bad, but rather that this world is a step towards the renewal of the creation in the presence of God. Two rapid-fire questions. I'm going to give you 60 seconds max because there's a lot of really good stuff I want to get to. Sure. What is the motivation for believing in election, predestination? Is it simply the text, or is there additional—is it just we got to take these texts seriously, or are there additional motivations to you know, accepting that? For many people, it's the text— I think for me, in addition to the texts, it's about deep theological themes that arise out of the text. And I think what Reformed theology is, a, or one thing that you find in Reformed theology is this sense that a fundamental theme of the biblical texts is about God's electing purposes. If you think that's right, then you're probably going to find Reformed theology appealing. Next rapid fire one. Is election primarily about salvation, meaning eternal destination, or you've already mentioned theosis, 
might it also be about like our vocation in the world yes. as image bearers and you know vice regents or whatever absolutely is anti rights language absolutely it's about both of those things I think yeah I, I, I think a, a kind of fuller account of election would include these other aspects that are being recovered in more recent theology particularly biblical theology so how does that work with Bart's idea that Christ is the one who is elect if I think that. I might be elect or not be elect, and if I am elect, that means I've got a job to do. Can I transfer the import of my job to do, quote-unquote, if it's going through Christ to me? Yeah. Do you lose, actually, some of that? I don't necessarily think so. So suppose you think that Christ is the true human. He's the kind of paradigmatic human or the prototypical human. First fruits. Right. Right, yeah. Then you might think that all our different vocations are kind of, in some sense, united or found in Christ as the prototypical human. Oh, yeah. That's cool. Okay. We're past the one minute for now. We can go. Is it possible to believe in a reformed predestination without believing in double predestination? And maybe this is the way to go. And we've already kind of touched on it. Going to Jesus rather than going to individuals. Of course, the main problem when people understand the doctrine of election as it is commonly taught, they go, well, if he chose me, and that means he chose not you, and that seems to be a problem to send you to hell. The short answer is yes. You could have a single decree, right? And then you'd be a universalist. And as I've already indicated, there are some, what many people think of as outliers in the Reformed tradition, nevertheless, there are some people in the Reformed tradition who take that view. There's not, it's not a double degree, there's a single decree. Or you take the Bartian view, and the, both decrees, as it were, are met in one person. Yeah, right. that's interesting, yeah. Then they rooted through Christ, or routed, as they say in America, through Christ. That's <laughs> that's another option. So I think there's scope there. There's scope there for some alternatives to the kind of stock and trade way of thinking about things. Okay, so I'm going to skip the stuff about like predestination to hell being unjust, because I'd really be arguing with a different kind of reform person than you. And so everybody can just uh, rehearse, <laughs> rehash those conversations. You could probably do it from memory in your own head. Okay, here's a big one. Yeah. Human free will yes. seems to be one of the best explanations or partial explanations for a lot of big problems, including one of the more successful and helpful um, approaches to the problem of evil. Mm-hmm. Can reform theology accommodate a thorough enough understanding of free will to keep those benefits? Oh, that's a good one. Um... Maybe let me summarize the benefit really briefly, just yeah. in case people forget. Basically, you say, well, how's there evil in the world and a good God, at least when it comes to human evil? One of the things you can say is, well, God wanted creatures with free will. If they have free will, sometimes they're going to choose poorly. There Mm -hmm. will necessarily be negative consequences, evil, suffering. But the good of having the ability to choose God back outweighs, in some sense, the pain that the negative choices cause. Do you get, can you have that? Maybe you can have something like that. I, I suppose that people often think of the Reformed tradition as theologically determinist. In fact, that's how I've already characterized it in, earlier in our discussion. So a theological determinist is just some, someone who thinks that, that God determines what comes to pass, right? You could have different forms of theological determinism. There's one version which says God determines all that comes to pass and we don't really have free will. We just It's just an illusion, right? So that would be a kind of hard theological determinism. There might be a soft version of theological determinism where God determines all that comes to pass, but that's in some sense consistent with human freedom. The compatibilist Right, view. compatibilism. Yeah. And, but then your account of human freedom is going to have to be correspondingly thin, 
right? So it yep. turns out, that, and this is something that you'll find in someone like Jonathan Edwards again, uh, your human freedom is something like choosing according to your strongest desires. And provided no one's forcing you to choose one thing rather than another, provided you're not sort of programmed to do one thing rather than another, then it's you doing the choosing. Uh, in, in some sense, you're the proximate source of the choice that you make, even if the ultimate source is elsewhere in, in God, right? Nevertheless, at the moment, you make the choice. It's you that's doing the choosing, right? So that way of thinking would be consistent with, or something like that way of thinking would be consistent with a lot of the reform tradition. And, and for most people, I think that's the kind of, or some version of that is a sort of default option. However, I think there may be, again, there may be alternatives, right? One alternative that I've been writing about in the last few years, although it's getting me into hot water, is the idea that there might be a kind of libertarian Calvinism. So libertarianism is the idea that we, in this context anyway, is the idea that we have free will and our free choices, however we understand free choices, are incompatible with determinism. Open theists are libertarians about free will. If the future is open, God doesn't determine it. God doesn't even know it until it is instantiated, until it actually happens. Right. Even if my will is limited because of my upbringing and my genetics and my habits and all of that, nonetheless, I can consider I'm going to throw this thing through the window or I'm not, and that would have consequences and all that stuff, yeah. I think an important thing for much libertarian thought, you know, in philosophy as well as in theology, is this notion of sourcehood, the idea that for it to be my choice, I must be the source of the choice and the ultimate source, not just Mm. the proximate source, right? It's got to originate with me. Some people who are libertarians say, in addition to this this kind of sourcehood criterion, there's also got to be some kind of leeway. So there's got to be a choice where I could do one thing rather than another. But I think the more fundamental thing is this notion of sourcehood. Now, it seems to me that one could make a case for the view that there are certain sorts of decisions that are outside of our reach, so to speak, outside of our metaphysical reach, those decisions having to do with our salvation. God has to do that. That's why we need grace, right? That's why the the gospel is about being justified by grace through faith. Yeah, the idea of works, righteousness, earning one's salvation, this common critique from Protestantism to other, I don't even understand that. I I don't even really intuitively grasp how anybody could think that somehow anything they do would earn them salvation with the creator of the universe. Right. So an idea of it's there are certain things I would I'm agreeing with you that there are certain things that are clearly beyond my will. Yeah. Yeah, I now I might be able to accept a free gift or something like that, but I can't I can't actually make it happen in any meaningful way. Right. As so, an agent. Yeah, and I think I think all people who are reformed are going to agree with that. Definitely salvation skill to be a gift and it's not something we can bring about ourselves. So those any decision associated with human salvation has got to be a divine prerogative. It's not going to be something that originates with me. I'm not going to be the source of that. But that doesn't mean that every single choice that I make, even every single momentous choice that I make, has to be understood in those terms. It may be that there are plenty of other choices that I make that I am the source of. So perhaps but, some way of thinking of it is a bit like someone who's an addict, right? Someone who's an addict can make all sorts of choices, sometimes important choices in their day-to-day life, that they're the source of. But there are other sorts of choices, really important choices, that are beyond the scope of their purview because they've been placed beyond the scope because of their addiction. Like they cannot now right. immediately give up their addiction without any consequences, without someone coming in and helping them, right? Totally. So something like that mixed account, it seems to me, you can find echoed in certain reform thinkers who think, yeah, we, when it comes to salvation, our will is in bondage to sin. We can't 
choose salvation, God's got to save us. That doesn't mean we don't have freedom in the stronger sense. It may be that there are there's a whole class of choices, mundane choices that I make, sometimes important ones. What do I vote for? Who do I marry? What do I do as a job? That really are up to me and that I'm really the source of in some more fundamental sense. So if that's right, then there's that other option that's still within the bounds of the Reformed tradition. That's quite different from the sort of way that these things are reported in the con- kind of contemporary theological scene. Here's a kind of devil's advocate question. Why accept such a strong view of divine sovereignty when it seems to contradict the biblical narrative? For instance, in the Lord's Prayer, we are taught to pray, Thy will be done, which implies that God's will is not always done on earth as it is in heaven, and that you know the prayer is a motivator for us to help instantiate God's will, or even just to be asking for God to do God's will. But either way, you don't ask that if everything that happens at all times is already God's will no matter what. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I suppose it depends how you think of those petitions, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you might think of those petitions rather than asking for God's will to be done because you, you know, it might not be done as a way of declaring that God's will will be done. I mean, the pre- one of the previous petitions is hallowed be thy name, but we don't say hallowed be thy name because we're worried that God's name won't be holy or there's some danger of it failing to be hallowed. Mm. But we are affirming and saying, hallowed be thy name. Your name is holy. We affirm that your name is holy. I'm not sure there is quite, I mean, there seems to be more distance though in the thy will be done thing. I mean, it's it's speaking specifically to states of affairs and it's using language that sounds like God has a preference yeah. for states of affairs. Hallowed be thy name is to ascribe to something what it already is. I don't know that you can draw a line between those two things. There seems to be more distance, I guess. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe that's true. I think one could potentially give a, a different analysis of the Lord's Prayer than is often given. I mean, some people often think that the Lord's Prayer is all about petitioning God for things that wouldn't happen unless we ask God to bring them about. But it's not clear to me that that's the only way to right. think Right. It could be the Lord's, the Lord's Prayer. Prayer is the purpose is for, to align us with God. Exactly. And that's the exactly. primary purpose. Okay. Well, not totally convinced by your response on that one, but uh, it's interesting. And it doesn't really matter what I think. Yeah, you want to say no, I was going to say, on the, I mean, there's the broader question about sovereignty that you're asking. I mean, it seems to me that one motivation for holding onto a high view of divine sovereignty is to do with belief in God's power and God's ability to act in a way that's not frustrated. And I, I suppose much depends on whether you want to privilege those sorts of things about God's character over other sorts of things about human freedom and responsibility. And a lot depends on, you know, making difficult decisions in in terms of, you know, God's knowledge and God's power versus um, human freedom and human responsibility. And again, I think much in this sort of debate has to do with intuitions that one has about which way one should go. Oh, 100%. And really, I mean, I'm, <laughs> I think for the sake of the dramatic tension, I'm, I'm, I'm amping this up a little bit, but I think that that's what theologians are always doing. I yeah. mean, we are matching, it's faith-seeking understanding. Right, absolutely. Faith includes, I mean, I would lean more heavily on personal experience probably than you would, or most people in the Reformed tradition. I, I sort of, my intuition is that we sort of start with this experience, and then all this language 
including the language in the tradition, including the liturgical language, all of that is a way of going, okay, does this line up with the experience? And then can I learn from other people who've had this experience? What did they learn? It's kind of crowdsourcing writ large. Yeah. And I, I think there's inspiration involved in that. I don't think that that means it's a purely human endeavor or anything. But for me, you do, you start with that raw spiritual experience or, or, or something of transcendence and right. something of love. And, yep. and then you go, oh, well, can, is there language for this? You know, so I can think yeah. about it and, yeah, absolutely. and further instantiate it. Speaking of God's sovereignty, though, yeah. does Reformed theology and its emphasis on God's sovereignty put God in a worse spot, so to speak, as we are doing these internal calculations with things like natural evil yeah. and, and or human-caused evil? Doesn't sovereignty, just generally speaking as a rule, put God more on the hook than other views? For instance, a process view or an open theist view yes. where human agency is really more the ultimate cause or closer to the ultimate cause. Yes, it does. No question. But there, I think you've, again, you've got to make a judgment call. What is a worse state of affairs? One where God is ultimately responsible for what takes place or one where God is limited and, and can't be held responsible for all things? He's not ultimately sovereign. Well, it seems to me that there's difficulties whichever way you go, right? Either you go down the route that says, no, God's not ultimately responsible for everything, well, then God's limited in various respects. God's incapable mm-hmm. of doing certain sorts of things. That's a problem of a certain sort. Or you say, no, God is capable of doing all things and does do all things. Well, then, you know, what do you do about uh, evil? Does that make God morally and causally responsible for the evil that exists? And that is, you know, one, that to my mind gets at the most difficult question for Christian faith, the question of evil in the face of, of God. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, greater minds than ours have, have wrestled with this for generations. And yep. it's a very difficult one. I mean, these days, I find great comfort in reading Job. And a number of my friends have been writing about what Job. What a reform thing to say. <laughs> <laughs> right. Because I think, you know, you, in Job, what you have is an account of precisely these things writ large and we're allowed to see behind the curtain uh, in the story of Job to understand what's going in the divine courtroom. And we still don't get the answer. We still don't find a resolution to these problems. And so my sense, I'm a kind of skeptical theist in these things. My sense is that God has a purpose in the created order, even for the things that are evil. Someone will say, well, how does God, you know, how on your view does God allow evil? Ultimately, my, my response is going to bottom out as a kind of a, I don't know. That doesn't mean God doesn't have a reason. It just means I don't have access to his reason. We might have reason to believe reason. We might have evidence or it might seem reasonable to us that the type of creatures we are are not the type of creatures that would have access to that. Absolutely. I mean, why think that the creatures that we are that have evolved over millennia and have this kind of soggy gray matter that's that's uh, at this particular state of evolutionary development are somehow going to have uh, immediate access to the great secrets of the universe. So I agree with that. I just, in my intuitional tug of war or seesaw, I, it's, it's more important to me to not have God responsible for the evil and I'll take less sovereignty, basically. Well, I, and I, I'm yeah. not, I don't think that I'm unsympathetic to that. I mean, of, oh, course, of course, as yeah. someone who's reformed, I, I struggle with that a lot. I mean, I wrote a master's degree in the logical problem of evil, uh, born out of existential crisis, trying to figure this out. I mean, I didn't figure it out, of course. But I think, <laughs> you know, these are real issues. We all struggle with them. And 
I guess I've just come to the point where I have resigned myself to, to acknowledging the fact that this side of the grave and perhaps even the other side of the grave, I'm not going to come to a resolution of these problems because of my finitude and my my kind of epistemic limitations, you know, in other words, limitations on what I can know about the purposes of God. When it comes to people of other religions, the first thing I'm thinking of is Bart's high view of scripture yeah. as kind of like a, un- a truly unique document. Yeah. What else in the Reformed tradition, is there anything that a Reformed Christian is required to believe or that comes with the territory about people of other faiths? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I don't think that many of the confessional documents of you know the 16th or 17th century or more recent confessional documents say a great deal about, maybe one or two of the more recent documents say something a little bit about people of other faiths, but not a great deal. Uh, Bart has different things to say at different points in his career. Towards the end of his career, he seemed to have a more optimistic view of there being other lights that many people have understood to be a way of trying to to gesture to other world religions, maybe having some kind of sense of the divine, even if it's not a complete sense of the divine. I suppose something like that approach is the sort of approach that I favor. And I think, you know, you can find that in the Reformed tradition. There are people who have more conservative views in the Reformed tradition who would tend to think that Christianity's got a monopoly on the truth and other world religions are either demonic or deeply problematically deceived. I tend to have a much more optimistic view of those things, and not just to do with the, Abraham, the other Abrahamic faiths, although I would say that as on my view, and I don't think this is inconsistent with being reformed, Judaism and Islam and Christianity, we're all worshipping the same God, even if some of us have got it wrong in some ways, and I, I think Christian, Christians have got things wrong in sure. various ways probably as well. But I think that even if you look at other, if you cast the net more broadly and you look at, say, the Hindu tradition or Judaism or Jainism or Sikhism or any one of the other great world faiths, we're dealing with a great diversity of religious beliefs, and undoubtedly we're dealing with incompatible truth claims at some level. So you, you can't get around that, I think. Nevertheless, I think even if there are incompatible truth claims, and even if, as I would want to confess, ultimately the greater truth is, can be found in Christianity, I would also want to affirm that in many of these world traditions, world religious faiths, you find a great deal that's good and that can be you know, approved of by Christians and that can be positive and life-giving. I've got a couple of questions here about sola scriptura and sort of sources of authority for knowledge. Yeah. The first one is why sola scriptura over something like the Wesleyan quadrilateral, scripture, reason, experience, and tradition? I mean, from where I'm sitting, that seems like obviously better. I mean, do you hold to sola scriptura? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I do hold to Sola Scriptura, but I'd kind of want to nuance what, what is meant by Sola Scriptura. Okay, what's your version? Yeah, so I mean... Sometimes sort of scripture is glossed as the idea, me and my Bible kind of thing. You know, well, if it's in the Bible, I believe it, and that's all the rest. That's all there is to it. I think that's a very okay, but that's that's a straw man version. Yeah, it's, it, it, maybe it is. I mean, I've certainly come across it in the classroom. <laughs> um, but wouldn't a more robust one be something like, once we have scripture, that's it. We don't yeah, right. need anything sure. else. And yeah. and even I maybe being a little charitable, saying once we have it, I think that's that's a leap. Is that you need yeah. tradition to get scripture yes to get it canonized but then 
Yeah. The view is once you got that, that is what you look to for. Then no, no authority, no continual tradition, yep. no experience that you might have will contravene it as a source of truth. Right. So I, I certainly think that traditionally Reformed Christians, like many uh, historic Protestants, have affirmed that Scripture is the norming norm that norms all other norms. In other words, it's the kind of fundamental theological norms for making theological judgments. Tripp said something the other day about. When you use norm to modify the word norm, you know you're dealing with Protestants or something like that. Yeah, or, or yeah. well, that's Calvinist true. That's true, yeah. yeah. So I, I, I certainly think that for historically reformed, you'd, you'd have scripture as a certain source of authority and all other theological authorities are in some sense subordinate to that, right? So you'd have under that, maybe you'd have the great creeds of the Christian tradition. You'd have confessions of particular communions, whether that's Lutheran or reformed or Baptist or whatever it is. You'd have under that theologians of particular stripes and then the- theological opinions perhaps below that. And certainly on the way, way I've expressed things in my own work is that Scripture is a norming norm. It has this fundamental role. And then under that, you've got creeds that you know almost all Christians agree upon that as a way of expressing certain things that we find in Scripture. Under that, we have confessions that are particular expressions of Christianity that belong to particular Christian traditions, whether that's Lutheran or, or Anglican or reformed or whatever it might be and then under that you've got you know the views of particular theologians whether that's calvin or luther or uh, aquinas or whoever it might be right that does put scripture in a category that's quite different from other sources of theological authority but i think it also importantly flags the fact that we can't do theology without these other sorts of subordinate norms and that's also very much a reformed claim that we don't just simply have the bible on its own but what we have is the bible refracted through the christian tradition and that colors how we look at scripture in really important ways this is a question i got from one of the listeners but you're going to probably nuance it in your own way if someone no longer identifies with the Reformed tradition and no longer believes themselves to be elect as a consequence, yeah, wow. does it mean that they never were elect? Like, how does election work if elect always elect and you'd be consciously aware of it? I think the, yeah. the motivation for this is like around the dinner table with one's dad who's really into election, yeah. you know, really talks about perseverance of the saints all the time. It's like, well, good thing we know we're in. And, and if people don't think they are, then they're not. You know, that's kind of a bastardized yeah, yeah, version. Sure. I, I hope of the. Yeah, I, no, I think I th- certainly don't think that you t- you have to know that you're elect to be elect. I think there's an important distinction there between how things are ontologically, in other words, how things are as it were in their being or or as as they are in themselves, and how we know or understand those things. Right. So what we might distinguish between an ontological and epistemic um, way of thinking about these things. So there are all sorts of ways in which. I can belong to a certain class of thing or be a certain sort of thing without necessarily knowing that, right? I mean, it was many years before I understood that I belonged to the species Homo sapien. That didn't, because I, you know, I'm a kid and I don't know very much human biology. But, you know, when you come to see that, you're like, oh, yeah, I've always been a member of that species, Mm, right? But it's not, it wasn't that I was only a member of that species when I came to understand that. Or if I forgot that, if I had amnesia or had some kind of head trauma and I ceased to, to know that I was a member of Homo sapien, it wouldn't mean I'd cease to be a member of the species Homo sapiens. So similarly with election, one can be elect, I presume, irrespective of whether one knows one's elect. Certainly if the Bardian view, if election is coming through Christ, then yeah. certainly many people are not aware of it. Right. Most people. Right. Yeah. 
And I, th- I actually take great comfort in that in this regard, that there are all sorts of vicissitudes in life and ups and downs and times when I feel more religious and less religious, more holy and less holy. I mean, if I was taking, my, if I was taking the temperature of my election, as it were, solely on the, my current religious state, yeah. we'd all, you know, I'd be in a bit of a disastrous situation. Yeah, you don't, you don't want too much to ride on your particular feelings in the moment in terms right. of your eternal de- right. destiny or whatever. Yeah. You might not even want it to ride on the content of your cognitive beliefs about God, which, yeah. is, which is another maybe motivation for that sort of Bardian approach. Yeah, I, I, again, I totally agree with that as well. I mean, it, it doesn't seem to me at all implausible that, you can, that there may be those who are elect who don't have a complete knowledge of who Christ is or of the nature of salvation. Uh, they and may... then you get into weird things about what's the cutoff point, because like how accurate is even right. the most accurate person's right. beliefs Absolutely. about God? Absolutely, right? yeah. So I, I mean, that's why I think putting too much store by, I mean, I'm a theologian, so I think doctrine is important. So don't mishear me. I'm not saying doctrine is a waste it's of time. Literally your job and your life. Right, exactly. Yeah. But I think, I, I don't think that salvation is dependent on right doctrine. Yeah. That, that can't be right. Well, uh, I agree. Um, but I think there is a lot of people in the broader Reformed tradition that love having the right doctrine so yeah. much that whether or not they would admit it, right. that is how they end up living it. Yes, I think sometimes some of my sisters and brothers in the Reformed tradition are a bit like that, yeah. It's kind of like an intellectual version of what you sometimes find in the holiness or Pentecostal traditions where there's like a second baptism, a spirit baptism. Yeah. And that's the way that you can know. Like praying yeah, the prayer yeah. and you don't know, but then you get this, now you really know. And yeah. it's this obsession with really knowing. And you you talked about this earlier, this need for certainty, this desire for certainty. M- might we say that those are sort of two sides of the same coin? They're, they're two different expressions of this, maybe we call it a sinful human need for yeah. certainty about stuff rather than an openness to faith in God and living day by day. Yeah. Just in, in the Pentecostal world, it expresses itself that way. In a Calvinist world, it expresses itself this way. Yeah, I think that's probably right. Yeah, we certainly do want that kind of certainty and worry when we don't have that kind of certainty. Maybe that's just part of the human condition. So this is just my last question for you, and it's just kind of an open invitation to maybe sum up or highlight some of what we've talked about or anything that we haven't talked about. A lot of people have been burned in Mm -hmm. Reformed or Reformed-adjacent kind of Baptist or non-denominational settings. Sometimes what they need is a break, uh, maybe forever, maybe for a period of time. But if someone is trying to comb back through their experience, Mm -hmm. and let's say they, to use Richard Rohr's language, they want to transcend and include, and whether or not they're going back, they want to find the good stuff. Mm -hmm. They want to understand that chapter of their life. What are the kind of things someone might look for in their reformed experience that they had that would be the type of things that you think you should you should you should hope to be able to bring this along with you mm. this is the best of the tradition this is this might help in healing you know what like what would you point to in that world i think i would want to say that although the reformed tradition is often painted as a very dour and bleak way of thinking about the world actually there are resources in the reformed tr- tradition which have to do with great hope, the hope that we have in the gospel, the hope that though we fail and fall short of the glory of God, nevertheless, God in Christ has met us and draws us in near to himself and offers us the opportunity to participate in the divine life through being united with Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit being able 
to be transformed and renewed in order that we may be fitted for the, the glorious life that, that is before us, as it were, in the world to come. Now, those none of those things are necessarily unique to the Reformed tradition. Yeah, yeah, I was thinking that. But I think that you can definitely find those things in the Reformed tradition and important motifs like union with Christ, for example. And as I've been saying in our discussion this morning, participation in the divine life are as much part of the Reformed tradition as they are part of other, other strands of Christianity. So perhaps one might think of it like this, that although Reformed Christianity has certain distinctives that I hope bring a, a good and useful contribution to the broader church, it is only one strand of the Christian tradition. It doesn't have all the right answers necessarily, but it is part of that richer, broader Christian tradition, and it does bring something to the table. And I hope that the things that it brings to the table can be thought of as, in many respects anyway, as a positive way of thinking about the Christian faith as part of this, this kind of rich ecumenical whole. I guess we should say this too, that especially if people are interested in the contrast between your views and these popular neo-Calvinist views, you wrote a book about that. What's that book called? It's called Saving Calvinism. That's the popular version, which is an IVP book that are slightly more academic, well, similar, it's not exactly the same, but on similar sorts of themes is a book that I wrote called Deviant Calvinism. Okay. So Deviant Calvinism is about, you know, trying to give an account of this broader tradition and say, look, um, there are more resources than you thought. Uh, And one of my publishers said, oh, you should write a more popular view of that. And that's what you find in Saving Calvinism. Great. Well, I'll put links to both of those in the notes. Um, Oliver, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Okay, on to our listener slash patron question from Carrie Ann. It's about some language in Paul. There's passages that seem on their face to teach universal salvation. For instance, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14 through 15. For the love of Christ urges us on because we are convinced that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all so that those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for him who died and was raised for them. Now, here's the actual text of her question. Quote, when I was in college, I went to Christian school that required all students to take Old Testament and New Testament survey courses. I remember that my New Testament professor really emphasized the all that Paul refers to means all without distinction, not all without exception. However, I was never really able to wrap my mind around this and was never satisfied with this approach. Where does this come from? And in light of your more universal bent towards salvation and the afterlife, what are your thoughts on it? End quote. Now, the reason I chose this question for this episode is that the conversation about this passage is not only related to the possibility of universal salvation, but I would say even more related to the distinction between a reformed soteriology that is, a Reformed understanding of who gets saved and how and why, and a non-Reformed soteriology. Let's do the Reformed versus non-Reformed part first, and then we'll talk universalism. So what stuck out to me the most was that Carrie Ann's professor really emphasized this interpretive move, that Paul is not saying Christ died for all people without exception, 
but that Christ died for all people without distinction. So all without distinction means something like people from all nations and ethnicities, men and women, etc. So there are some number of people that God will save, predetermined before they are born on this view, and that group of people is taken from all corners of the earth. That's the idea. So why make this move? Why not just say, Christ died for all people everywhere. Here's my take. Given a certain overall theological understanding, you have to make this move. If you are convinced that the L in tulip, limited atonement, that's the five-point Calvinism that I mentioned in the intro, if limited atonement is true, then you can't say that Christ died for all people. Limited atonement means that Christ's death and resurrection is only for the elect. It's not for everyone. If it's for everyone, then that is an unlimited atonement. But before we throw all reformed people under this particular bus, which was predestined before all time to be rushing at us, let's remember what Oliver had to say about this question. I've been describing the Calvin-style approach to election, but there's also the Bart-style approach, where the fork is inverted. God only elects one person, Jesus Christ, from before the foundations of the world, under whom all without exception are also elected. So here are two ways of thinking about how you might interpret the idea of all, even within the Reformed tradition. Calvin's fork, it has to mean people of all kinds, but not all people. So we're going to call that all without distinction. Bart's inverted fork it can mean all people, full stop. So that's the Reformed reading. Here's a more standard non-Reformed reading. It's going to end up agreeing with Bart, but for different reasons. If you aren't Reformed, but you're also not a universalist, which, by the way, is most Christians, both in history and today, they're not Reformed, nor are they universalists. You might just say, look, Christ died for all people, but not all people except Christ. It's as simple as that. This is what I was raised to believe. I was raised to believe that like, look, Jesus's death and resurrection is for everyone, but you have to accept it. You have to say, yes, I'll take that. So just because you go with all without exception, as opposed to all without distinction for these passages, it doesn't mean that you're automatically at universalism. But there are a few ways that people get to universalism from there. Number one, a few verses later, Paul writes that God is reconciling the world to God's self through Christ. You might think, why put a word like the world in there if you don't mean everyone? The world must mean the universe, everything. Otherwise, Paul would have said something like, God is reconciling many people to God's self through Christ. Why didn't he just say many people? Why do you say the world? Uh, another scriptural approach to get to universalism is to appeal to 1 Timothy 2. I'll quote, This is right and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. End quote. God desires everyone to be saved. It's a simple argument then to ask, does God get what God wants? This argument can be pretty powerful for people who believe that God is omnipotent. 
how can God not get what God wants if God is omnipotent? God has all the power you could possibly have. Now, interestingly, some open theists and process theologians will not buy this argument because they say precisely that God limits God's own power to get what God wants so that creatures can have the kind of true free will that is a prerequisite of a true loving relationship. I actually buy that argument. And so my universalism, um, it doesn't come from that argument. Does God get what God wants? And there are other arguments as well for universalism that we're not going to get into here. That will someday be its own episode. The point here, though, is that this distinction that Carrie Ann's professor made, all without exception or all without distinction, is not necessarily a disagreement about universal versus non-universal salvation. It's definitely a conversation about limited or unlimited atonement. In other words, for whom did Christ die? Everybody or only the elect? Now, Carrie Ann mentioned that she was never quite satisfied with her professor leaning so heavily on all without distinction. And it won't surprise you to hear that neither am I satisfied with that. Uh, But I see no need to read the passage that way. It seems to me that whatever God does for people, God does it for all people without exception. The world that we live in includes things like the Holocaust, genocides, birth defects, torture, famines caused by bureaucracy, et cetera, et cetera. It's hard enough to feel like a Christian to lean into the times when I'm confident that I have indeed experienced a God of love, either directly or through the love and care of other people, and to live as if God really is good. That is challenging enough as it is. If I have to tack on to that, that the same, quote, loving God, unquote, also only loves some of us, Uh, I'm out. I mean, I'm just out. But thankfully, I don't have to believe that. Christians who do believe that, who have a view of limited atonement, are something like 10% or less of worldwide Christians. And just so you know, I'm not making that up. I'll tell you how I got there. There's probably 15 to 20% of worldwide Christians are reformed or reformed adjacent. But not all reformed people are tulip Calvinists. So let's say it's half and the real number is 17% of global Christians are reformed and half of reformed people are into limited atonement. That would only be eight and a half percent of worldwide Christians. I I suspect it's lower. Um, But now that 8% or so tend to be quite vocal about the fact that they truly understand the scripture and others don't. And they tend to be quite popular in certain pockets of American Protestantism. But so what? Most Christians are not convinced by their arguments, nor is Carrie Ann, nor is Oliver Crisp, and nor am I. My own universalism, Carrie Ann, is more of a hunch, a kind of a hodgepodge of a lot of arguments. And as I said to Oliver in the interview, I can't be sure about it. It's just what I think is true. What I am most confident of, however, is that there is no way I can believe that God tortures anyone forever. I don't see Christ anywhere in a picture of God like that, in a picture of the afterlife like that. I do see in a picture of God like that all kinds of very human psychological motivations, in-group bias, us versus them, group definition, sense of superiority, etc. So, Carrie Ann, I agree with you, and I disagree with your professor, and it sounds like Oliver 
also disagrees with your professor. So you're in good company. Great question. Thank you for that. And now I have to say a huge thank you to Laura Kondaragian for editing my conversation with Oliver. In the show notes, I've got links to theopsych.com at Fuller Seminary, both of Oliver's books, Saving Calvinism and Deviant Calvinism. And, you know, the normal stuff here. If you want to join the Patreon and get extra exclusive episodes and have access to the patron-only Facebook group, Help Me Write Questions Now and Again, please join it. Patreon.com slash Dan Koch or youhavepermissionpod.com. Click Become a Patron. Uh, I want to know how things are going. I am getting more busy with school and whatnot, but I still want to hear your stories. What are you thinking about? Who do you want me to interview? You have permission podcast at gmail.com. Thank you guys. See you soon.